Welcome to the SMI Bulldog. Uh, Brian Black here with you, where we talk about serious mental illness advocacy and public policy. Joining us today, and I will, I'm not going to lie, it is an uh, equally an honor and a privilege, but also slightly intimidating <laughs> to uh, speak with uh, mental health uh, attorney, uh, now retired, uh, Chick Arnold. Um, Mr. Arnold, thank you so much for, for being here today. Uh -huh. I, I appreciate it. The pleasure is absolutely mine, Brian. Thank you for having um, it, it, and it, it, it is an honor and a privilege to, to have you on, on, on the podcast. I had mentioned to you when I reached out to you to be on the podcast, your, uh, work and, and your, um, lawsuit, and we'll, we'll get to that, you know, momentarily is something that was taught to, like taught to me as part of a wellness recovery and action plan. I believe there's different variations of that, but you are Arizona history. Well, you know, I'm, I'm honored to have been blessed by having a legal education and coming out of law school at a time when uh, I, as a lawyer, was seasoning and growing, as was our mental health system. Uh, I went to law school not to be a lawyer. I went to law school to get a legal education. I'm a product of the 60s and had confidence that they, I'd be able to find something positive to do with that education. And so I came out of law school in Tucson in 1970 at a time when our mental health system was just being birthed and uh, during the course of my career, I had the fabulous opportunity to have an impact on how the system has developed. Cool, cool. Now, now to, to, to set the proverbial stage for Arnold versus Sarn, the context for that, as I understand it, would be during the, uh, during, during the Reagan administration with deinstitutionalizes, would that be would that be correct to say, well, or is that a... So in terms of timing, it was, I, I, uh, I practiced law for a short time, and then in 1979, uh, was appointed as the Maricopa County Public Fiduciary, that means public guardian. And as such, we became the guardians of 600 people in this community who didn't have families or other networks to help manage their lives. As you know, the demographics in our state are quite unique in that people move here and often leave their families and social networks elsewhere. And so when a person has an issue or a problem, there's not much family support. Thus, we were among the first states in the country to develop a public guardianship program. And in 1979, I was appointed as Maricopa County Public Guardian. That also coincided with what's referred to often as the deinstitutionalization process. I want to add, I don't call it deinstitutionalization. I call it dehospitalization because, in fact, people were moved from one lousy institution, in our case, the state hospital, to other lousy institutions, boarding homes and jails and other opportunities of necessity. And so, uh, I, again, I seasoned and matured as a lawyer, as our system did. Uh, in 1979, being appointed as the public guardian gave me a, a, a horse in the race. 
one of the people for whom we had been appointed was a guy named John Goss, who was 41 years old in 1979 and had been a stockbroker prior to his break. He lived in various boarding homes, one of which was a place called S&W Boarding Home. That was notorious back in the 70s. It was part of what I referred to then as a mental health ghetto in our community, an area that was bounded by Roosevelt on the north and Mojave on the south and 7th Ave to 7th Street. And it was filled with these schlock boarding homes that housed people and gave them room and board in exchange for their then SSI check of about 230 bucks. John had nothing to do every day. And part of my role as the public guardian was participating in legislative activity. One of the things I did in 1979 was be a part of a committee that addressed what was then known as Senate Bill 1057, which was the statute that now says everyone who lives in our state who has a serious mental illness, then it was referred to as a chronic mental illness, nevertheless equally serious. Everyone who has that diagnosis is entitled, entitled to a full range of community services, including such thing as housing and transportation and day programs, all kinds of things that hadn't existed anywhere. We were the first state and among the only states in the country to pass such a legislation. And so when I became the public fiduciary, I was in a position to use the tools of my training as a lawyer and this statute to affect some real relief. Oh, cool. Good, good, good deal. Now, and, and that sets the stage for, for what came afterwards as far as Arnold versus Sarn. And for those who may not be familiar with that, what, what would, you, what, what would the, the brief synopsis of that be? It was a class action lawsuit. And what that means is that a few people were actually named in the case, but they were actual representatives of a much larger group of people. And it wouldn't be practical to list everybody in the community who was affected by the statute. And so John Goss served as a representative. That's what a class action lawsuit is. We alleged uh, I was John's guardian. Uh, One day, John came into my office. He walked the streets of Phoenix every day. And among his stops was my office in the old courthouse at the time. And he said, you know, he read about these, this new statute that says that there ought to be a full range of community services in place, but he doesn't have any. And aren't I a lawyer? And I, I said, uh, yeah, John, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. And he said, aren't you my guardian? And I sort of slinked back in my chair and said, uh, yeah, John, I'm your guardian. He said, well, why don't we do something about this? And that was the domino that knocked down other dominoes that became this class action lawsuit. I then went to my friends at the Center for Law and the Public Interest, now known as the Center for Disability Law, and we concocted a case recognizing that there are lots of other people just like John who were intended to be the beneficiaries of that statute, but in fact, there was a disconnect. There were no services available. And that was how the case was filed against the state and the county 
because but the state has the legal responsibility to provide health care to its residents, and the county has the responsibility to provide mental health care. This, of course, fit both, and thus they were both defendants in the case. So this, the, the class action suit then, that was essentially an agreement that, that was, that, that, is that, is that? Well, we got there. So, so when the case was filed, it's in the form of a complaint. It alleges that the defendants, the state and the county, were not meeting their statutory obligations. So judge, we asked, do something about it. Make them comply with the statute. As you know, the case was filed in 1981. The trial held in 1985 and 86. And in the decision, Judge Bernard Darney, the, the Superior Court judge assigned to the case, found that indeed the statute created a mandatory duty on the part of the state, and the state was not in compliance. Therefore, the court found that they had to create a system to meet the statutory requirements. The trial was 1985. Uh, the parties reached an agreement. And that agreement was embodied in the form of a document called the implementation plan. Sometimes it was called the, blu the blueprint. And that yeah, the, the blueprint is how I, that was what it was called when I learned about it. Yeah. I was, it was that, the, the, the blueprint. Was an agreement between the parties that, that set forth with specificity 289 separate things that the state had to do, state and county had to do in order to bring that statute to life. Things like creating a system, having a grievance and appeal system, having advocates in place to help people negotiate the system, all kinds of things that weren't in place. That proceeded in 1989, the Supreme Court decision came and that decision was a 40 page poetic opinion that reminded the citizenry of our state that indeed the state has a responsibility to take care of those who can't provide for themselves. Our legislature had provided for it. Now our judicial branch had interpreted that in terms of forming a mandatory duty on the executive branch to create this system, a classic separation of powers issue. The parties agreed, and in 1991, we signed a, a, an agreement. And that agreement had all of these things that had to be complied with. And there were governors that were changing, the, the, the political landscape was constantly changing, and the threat to the plaintiffs, the advocates, was to be assertive in our advocacy, but not so assertive that we could be teamed deemed too aggressive, thus triggering, changing the statute. You know, interestingly, I do work and did work as a lawyer in the system for persons with developmental disabilities, as well as the mental health system. And in the statute that creates rights for persons in the, with developmental disabilities, that statute says the state shall provide a full range of services, comma, subject to appropriations. Well, that subject to appropriations language never existed in the mental health statute. And so the issue, the defense in the case by the state was we don't have the money to do it. 
And the court's decision was either you have to go to the legislature and ask for the money or ask the legislature to change the statute. But for so long as that statute created a mandatory duty, the state had to comply with that. Right, now, one, one question I have, and I, um, and I hope this is okay to ask, but as far as receiving services, is that pertinent to what in, I believe in the state of Arizona are what's called the, the regional, I think they're still called that, the, the regional behavioral health, the, the BHAs, the behavioral <laughs> health. So is that pertaining to services provided by the BHAs or is that, is that a general definition of the word? No, that, that's consistent. So the way this, our state has chosen to discharge its responsibility is by contracting out for it. Indeed, originally, we, the, the REBA system, the Regional Behavioral Health Authority system, known as the REBA system in short, was chaotic. At one point, there were three separate REBAs for Maricopa County. Depending on what side of Indian School Road you happened to live on, determined the array of benefits to which you were entitled. That was outrageous. So I've lobbied against the REBA system from the beginning. I think it's dysfunctional and purposefully intended to create artificial obstacles to service. So other states don't have these kind of contracted out to private resource systems. And I think our health department needs to be in the business of providing health care, not contracting for it. Correct. Now, the agreement that 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 Arnold versus Arnold led to that agreement, though that ended in 2014. So, what can you explain what what that what that what the significance of, of that date is as it pertains to the agreement was modified over the years. And so, in 1995, uh, there was what was called the exit criteria agreement. The governor at the time was Fife Symington who was uh, staunchly of a believer that the courts ought not to be in the business of making public policy. And in his view, that's what this court was doing. And so there was an affirmative effort to change the statute. The way the system reacted to that was by modifying the original implementation agreement into what was called the exit criteria agreement. This happened in 1995 and essentially recognized that some of the things had been done. Some of them had been done partially and some haven't been done at all. And so the 1995 exit criteria agreement honed in on what, what needed to yet happen. Things changed, 1998, we were making progress. Then the governor was Jane Hull she had convened a legislative task force to determine how much money it's gonna to cost to do all of this. The number was an astounding figure of something like $385 million. And that resulted in the next modification of the agreement called the Supplemental Agreement in 1998. That was an agreement that essentially said, we know we have limited resources, we can't do everything for everybody, so it created what was then known as priority clients. Those were people who were in and out of the state hospital, in and out of the jail, or were homeless. 
And so that was an affirmative effort to take what resources there were to be made available and direct them to those most in need. And by the way, during this time, there were constant efforts by advocates in the system to be getting more money from the legislature. That was a constant uh, call. Yeah, one of one of the really neat things about what what we're talking about here is it it really does in many ways almost like lends itself to an impromptu history, you know, in Arizona history in a way because. I know that often this aspect of Arizona history for those who might have moved here, I, I myself have lived here long enough to know who Wallace and Ladmo are. Yeah. So I, <laughs> to put it in context how long I've been here. Uh, but many people who, who might have moved here recently, this is, this is very informative because often like they move here and they might not think about what happened, you know, prior to, so this is, definitely lends a lot of insight to where well, to and, where we are today. It stands for important principles as well. Yeah. And, and you know, an advocate has so much power, but they're limited. Mm -hmm. That I happen to be a lawyer as well as an advocate was a blessing at a time when advocacy was critical. Mm -hmm. And so as things sort of panned out after that 1998 agreement, mm -hmm. the system refined, uh, the, the REBA system, uh, while it still remains, became refined such that there's only one REBA in Maricopa County. Uh, the REBAs then contract out to provider agencies to actually provide the in-person service. Uh, now things are still not humming, certainly, but we have the structure in place to be able to, with sufficient funding, create a robust community-based system. Cool, cool. Now, one thing I, I wanted to ask you as far as with respect to where we are today and where we are moving into the future. Um, when I was younger, like junior high, high school age, I would volunteer at different mental health organizations uh, locally as well as nationally. And then life happened and school and, and college and whatnot. And then I, I returned in the last couple of years to find that the landscape locally and in many respects nationally as well has changed. And what I mean, what I mean, what I mean by that is I don't remember a lot of mental health organizations being dictated with a lot of uh, rudeness and hostility and animosity and suspicion, which I mentioned because I'm, I'm someone who is very much an off podcast advocate. So I do podcasting through, I, I do advocacy through podcasting, but I also do it offline as well. And I've just been struck by how rude and how hostile and how unwilling to engage contact with other people that I've encountered. And do you know, do you know why that is? Why that, why that has it's become really, the norm? I think that's an insightful observation. And when we globalize that, uh, 
uh, recognize that our system is essentially run by an agency that has, let's save as much money in its name, Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System. It doesn't say Arizona Healthcare Let's Provide Service mm -hmm. to the system. It's Arizona Healthcare Let's Save as Much Money as We Can System. Yeah. And so if you believe that's the purpose of the system, well, then that's consistent with the kind of response that you, you get. <laughs> On the other hand, advocacy is a maturing new industry. We're still learning. And we recognize that when we see something like this litigation, that there's one pathway to effect relief. Lobbying in the legislature is yet another. And using our, our voting power is yet another critical way of affecting public right. and that And that right there, that's something that I, I also wanted to ask you about. And, um, I know that there are some local groups, and I'll, I'll leave their, their names uh, off mic, who have elected, no pun intended, to focus on exclusively, almost nearly exclusively, upon the legislative process and the, the litigation process um, at the expense of building dialogue and building coalitions and build which which logic would dictate are needed to succeed in the public in, in, in the um, in public office because if someone does not build those coalitions they don't they don't get elected whether it's the president of the United States whether it's a senator whether it's a judge you need those coalitions to get elected and I've noticed a very pronounced uh, strategy to focus almost exclusively on the legislature. And, and what I mean by that is refusing to speak with anybody who is not a legislator or an attorney or another fill in the blank decision maker. And I, I, I have a very hard time understanding how that strategy is helpful or how it is. I mean, do you, do you have any of the similar concerns as yeah, far as that goes? I think, I think generally advocacy requires each of those pathways. Mm -hmm. you know, when you look at the, the seasoning of the, this issue, the Arnold versus Son case, mm -hmm. the initial effort was lobbying the legislature to get yeah. the statute passed. And the, the primary mover of that statute was a Republican conservative member of the House, Robert Husday. Mm -hmm. uh, that took the soft kind of advocacy and that mm -hmm. created the obligation by the state, but they weren't meeting their obligations. Mm -hmm. So that required the hammer of litigation. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it, it's, it's a little of both. And, okay. okay. And, and we're still learning. Okay. So, 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 so some prior scenarios led to the different approaches then. Well, I think we need both approaches. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Yeah, I, I, I agree, because like I said, I and I had alluded to this um, prior to, to going on mic, but when I've reached out to different um, advocates, I, I really was not prepared for having complete strangers accuse me of any number of different things just by being persistent. I, I never, that's a new, that's a new concept for me, being treated like 
persistence is a bad thing. Well, as you say that, my definition of advocacy over the years has been banging your head against the wall <laughs> ever until you get the results that you know to be right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is so true. So yeah. true. Well, um, Mr. Arnold, um, we're about to just a, a few minutes left um, this episode. Um, is there any other like, like take home point that you could give to listeners? Cause I know that I myself often feel demoralized and discouraged at the banging my head against the wall. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine there might be people listening who also feel that as well. Would there be any sort of take home point that you, you could say that would, that would, Gives give some some comfort or or, or, or um, alleviate that that concern. Well, you know, uh, I would remind us that advocacy is a never ending process, mm-hmm. and that we that wins and losses are part of the dinner. It it yeah. comes with the dinner, and yeah. we in order to enjoy the successes of our work, uh, often we have to overcome the the defeats. Mm-hmm. Uh, advocacy is an uphill fight. Uh, by its very nature, we're trying to change the status quo, and that often is is resisted. Oh, I I am so happy you said that changing the status quo because that right there, many people find that a, a threatening concept, changing the status quo. So I, I am so I'm so happy to hear you say that. I'm I'm very much um, not a fan of the status quo, and I and I do well, want definitely yeah. absolutely. So, Mr. Arnold, thanks thanks again for uh, being on on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Brian, and thanks for the great work you're doing. Thank you, thank you, um, thank you. Those of you at home or wherever you may be, um, stay safe, everyone, and uh, talk talk to you next time. Uh, bye.